Um, so like Natalie said, today we are going to be starting a study in the book of Ruth. Um, we are going to be covering Ruth through the rest of November, but specifically over the next several weeks, we're going to actually look through Ruth chapter 2. But today, I'm going to get, I get the privilege of giving you kind of an overview, taking you guys on this big picture view of Ruth and what is going on in this story. And I, I want to tell you guys that Rachel, my wife, is a little jealous because uh, Ruth is one of her favorite books as well, but that just meant that during this week we got to be able to talk to each other and I ask each other like, well, what do you think are some big themes that everybody should know to really understand what is happening in this story? Because this story sometimes, if you just do a quick surface reading of Ruth, you think, well, okay, it's just a nice little love story, right? It's only a small four-chapter book inside of the Old Testament, and I, got, I just want to tell you real quick, just like Jonah, don't, don't be deceived by the size, because there's a lot happening in those four chapters. Because when, yes, when you compare it to like some of the big epic stories that surround it, like Joshua and the con conquering the promised land, or Exodus and all the plagues, it might seem like it's just such a small-scale story, but when you step back and you look at it in light of the whole biblical story, you see that it's actually very important. That this story actually is a key event in God's overarching story that he's trying to tell us. So today, let's take some time and let's look at this big picture of Ruth and set up the context of what we need to know to really understand what we're going to be talking about and studying for the next several weeks. And the first thing I want us to look at is where Ruth is located in your Bible. So if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app and you look at, you know, your table of contents, you probably will notice that Ruth, um, traditionally, is always placed after Judges, but before 1 Samuel. And that really does make sense. Um, as we're going to talk about shortly, it is a story that acts like a bridge between those two books because it's a story that sets up one of the most biggest characters of the Old Testament, and that's King David, right? In fact, if you have your Bibles open, flip over to Ruth. Um, and while you're going flipping over to Ruth, actually flip over to the very end of Ruth. We're gonna we're gonna start at the end, so I'm sorry, spoilers uh, for Ruth. Um, but if you would flip over to the very last chapter and look at the second to last verse, verse 17. We're going to start with that verse because it's going to give us a key of why Ruth is placed in this position in the Old Testament. You see, verse 17 is the conclusion of the story, and it says this, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now we're going to get to why, the whole, why everybody is very excited for a child to be born in a second, but notice that it ends with this little genealogy, which is why this story is so important. Because the story is going to tell us how we get to David. And David, it's through David that eventually we get Jesus. But notice that even though the verse 17, which is really the conclusion of the story, ends with that little genealogy, if you notice there is still one more verse, verse 18. And verse 18 seems to say the same thing. You have, uh, it starts like this. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, 
fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ham, Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And you might be wondering, well, okay, well, why did whoever write Ruth do that, right? They just stated a little genealogy. They already connected what was going on to David. Why did they now repeat a genealogy? Well, the important thing in that last little bit is the first phrase that begins that whole thing. Now, these are the generations. And that phrase is an important phrase in the Old Testament. You see, it appears all the time throughout Genesis. It appears once in Numbers, and it appears once here in Ruth. And every time you get to that phrase, it's like the Bible is trying to tell you that a new section of God's story is starting. It's like you're entering a new chapter of what God is doing. Like, for example, if you were to look at the very first phrase, it starts in, it's actually, it first appears in Genesis 2. At the beginning of Genesis 2, it says, and these are the generations of when God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to describe God creating man, the fall of man, you know, Cain and Abel, all of that. And then you go forward a few chapters, and you see that phrase again. But this time, it's in chapter 6, and it says, these are the generations of Noah. And then it's like the story changes a little bit because now it's talking about Noah and Noah's sons. Then after Noah, you get these are the generations of Abraham. And then so so it's it's now shifting the story to different major characters and also major plot points. All that to say, I want you to guys understand that because that verse, that phrase, appears 10 times in Genesis. And 10 is already an important number, but I'll get to that another day. So 10 times in Genesis one time in Numbers, and then its twelfth and final time it appears in the Bible is here in Ruth. And when I tell you that this is the twelfth time that this phrase appears, that number twelve should set off little like alarm bells in your head because twelve is a very important number in the Bible. Twelve is always used in reference to Israel. So just by looking at where it's placed in the Bible and looking at this phrase, we can see that one of the major themes of of Ruth is that we're going to see, hey, we're about to enter the section of the story where Israel is finally going to be truly Israel. Israel is finally going to be united. They're going to fully control the land that God has promised them, and we're going to get to see what happens. So what we can be looking for in Ruth is we can be looking for, okay, well, what does a true Israelite look like? Because that, that phrase gives us a key to that might be one of the major themes of this book. But there's something else you need to know, that the way, when you looked at your, like, either in your app or at the beginning of your Bible, and you look at where the books of the Bible are ordered, that is not the only way the Old Testament is structured. In fact, the Old Testament, as you probably all know, is the Jewish Bible, right? It's the Jewish scriptures. So if we look at how the Hebrew scriptures are ordered, it's actually slightly different. All the same amount of, same books but they're all structured slightly differently. Whereas in our Bibles, there's kind of five major divisions in the Old Testament. For the Hebrews, it's divided up into three sections. So for a Hebrew Bible, you would have the first section is the Torah or the law. It's the first five books of the Bible. Then you would have the prophets. And those do include things that you probably would think as prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah. But it also includes stuff like Kings and Solomon. Some books that you might be like, well, why is that the prophets? And then the last section of the Hebrew Bible is called the writings. And that is where you would find the book of Ruth. 
And traditionally, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is usually always placed after Proverbs. Well, you might be wondering, okay, well, why would you place Ruth after Proverbs? Well, if you know Proverbs, Proverbs 31, the very last chapter, the very last section of Proverbs, the last thing you read about in Proverbs before you would get to Ruth, is the whole idea of this is what a godly woman looks like, right? This is what a godly wife looks like. So you're reading through Proverbs, you're reading about this godly woman, this godly wife, and then immediately you start reading this story about Ruth. And what happens is that you should immediately start seeing in Ruth a lot of the characteristics and the things that you just read about in Proverbs 31. So just by looking at, again, where Ruth is placed in the Bible, according to the Hebrew Bible, we can see that a major theme is how the ideals, the things that we read in Proverbs 31, can be lived out by somebody. So those are two major themes, right? You have how the Proverbs 31 woman being lived out, and you have what does a true Israelite look like. Now, hopefully you still have Ruth open. Let's flip back to the beginning of Ruth. So that's where we can find some things by its location in the Bible. Let's talk about the context of the story itself. So Ruth 1, um, if you flip there. Now, um, all of the, my references from Ruth are um, the SHP, which is the Shelby Hunt paraphrase. Um, but I'm sure you guys can follow along fine in whatever version you have. But verse 1 says this. During the time period of Judges, there was a famine. A man from Bethlehem, the house of bread, in Judah, left to go live in the fields of Moab with his wife and their two sons. So let's unpack that real quick. First, we're given a time period, right? Um, it says that it is in the time period of Judges. The, the fun Hebrew phrase is it literally says it's when the Judges were judging, which I always thought was kind of fun. But right, it lets us know, okay, what what is happening in Israel when Ruth is taking place? And it's important to know that because if you haven't ever read Judges, um, you'll, you you kind of find out in Judges that Israel is not the place you want to be at that time. Like if you had any, if you had a time machine and you could jump back to ancient Israel, you would not want to jump back to ancient Israel when it was the time of the Judges. Because as you read through Judges, there's this phrase that gets repeated over and over and over again, and it's really the theme of the whole book, and that is, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Judges, we see that uh, when people choose to define good and evil by their own standards, violence and bloodshed isn't far behind. And the reason why you need to know that this is the time period that Ruth is happening is because you can understand that it actually, there's a threat kind of going on by that beginning this story. Like, if you were, say, a, a widow from a country that had issues with Israel in the past, you would not want to find yourself in Israel at the time of the judges. Like, if you wanted to look for an example of someone in the Bible who was super vulnerable and could easily have been taken advantage of, you have no better example than Ruth. So that first phrase should make you ready to read about, okay, there is, we're in Israel, which means we should be about reading about a group of people who have no idea what the law of God is, because that's what we see throughout Judges, right? More, every time you get to a new story in Judges, it seems like people forget more and more what actually they were supposed to be as Israelites. And it's with that backdrop 
that makes Ruth so interesting because it breaks what we should expect. We should be expecting to read about people who have no idea what they're doing. They're defining good and evil by their own, by the, what they what they want to define good and evil by. But instead, we're seeing these three main characters interact in a very different way. And the three main characters you need to know is first, there's Naomi. Um, and we've already met Naomi. Um, that very first verse that we read of chapter one, it says a man and his wife, the wife is Naomi. I mean, verse two, it names her as Naomi. Um, you'll also notice that the verse that we read, which was the end of the story, also named Naomi. Because even though the book is called Ruth, really, if you look at it, this is kind of Naomi's story. This is a story about Naomi and her redemption. Because here's a really quick summary about what happens in Ruth. So right at the beginning, you have Naomi and her family, and there's a famine in the land, so they go to Moab. And while they're in Moab, um, the her sons, her two sons, get married to Moabite women, and then all the males die, leaving only Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. After about 10 years in Moab, uh, they hear about that the famine is over, and so Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem where they're from, the two daughter-in-laws at first want to go along with her, but Naomi tries to convince them not to come. Ruth, though, says that she is not going to abandon Naomi and goes back to Israel with her. And when Naomi gets back to Israel, she is understandably a little angry because she feels like God has taken everything from her. So when the people greet her, she tells them, don't call me Naomi anymore because that means pleasant. Call me Mara, because that means bitter. Because that's, that's how she felt. She just felt really bitter inside. But then something miraculous happens. Ruth ends up meeting this man named Boaz. And Boaz just ends up being a relative and a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. And if you don't know what a kinsman redeemer is, it's just this concept in the Old Testament where... If somebody in, uh, in the family, there was a widow, and they, that widow had no male children, there is no way to inherit the property, because property and all that was tied to the male line. So another person in the family would marry that widow, have children, and then that would also preserve not just the family name, but it would preserve the family property as well. So Naomi sees this, sees this chance meeting of Ruth and Boaz, as maybe this chance, maybe this is a thing that God is using to bring redemption to her. So Ruth, so Ruth gets sent by Naomi to Boaz and she gets, uh, Naomi gives Ruth specific instructions like this is what you need to do, uh, to get Boaz to redeem you. But Boaz tells Ruth, well, there is somebody else that's actually further in line than I am. And so Boaz and goes and talks to that guy, and that guy refuses to marry Ruth. And so Boaz is more than happy to step in and do his part of redeeming both Ruth and Naomi. And so they get married. They have a son, right? We see, like at the end of the book, you see this the people of the neighborhood, the people of Bethlehem have come together. And notice that in verse 17, if you remember this, they're not saying a child was born to Ruth. They're saying a child has been born to Naomi. Because that signifies that Naomi, in the end, has been redeemed. That she has been, re she has been restored. Right, And at the end, they're not calling her Mara. They're calling her Naomi. 
Now, through that little overview, you've heard that you heard the two other main characters that you need to know, right? You need to know about Ruth and Boaz. So first, let's talk about Ruth because, I mean, the book's named after her, so she's obviously important to what's going on. And throughout the entire book, there is a key defining attribute that the book really wants you to know about Ruth, and that is she is a Moabite. She is a foreigner. In fact, as you're reading through this, it's like the author of the book is trying to just hit you over the head with this fact because it's really important for you to understand it. And it's very, very important for you to understand that she is not just a foreigner, but a Moabite because that whole thing, the fact that she is a Moabite woman, should also send up red flags. Because as you're reading through your Bible, there's a very big story that is linked there. So when you read, Mo read Moabite woman, the first thing that should pop in your mind is, well, Numbers 25. And if you're unaware of what's happening in Numbers 25, um, the people of Israel haven't entered the promised land yet. They're about to, but they're hanging out outside of Moab. And the king of Moab is scared of the people of Israel. He thinks that they're going to come destroy him. And so he wants to destroy them first. So he goes and gets this guy named Balaam. And he's like, hey, can you curse these people? And God prevents Balaam from cursing them. But Balaam comes up with a great plan. He tells the king of Moab, oh, get, go get your pretty women. Have them come over to the camp. Have them get the men of Israel to fall in love with them. And then have them get the men of Israel to start worshiping other gods besides Yahweh. And the plan works. And because of that, this plague breaks out among the Israelites and 24,000 people are killed. And it isn't stopped until Phineas the priest goes and impales a couple with a spear while they were getting to know each other. I know it's, it's one of my favorite stories, so I, I know it's just such a great story for you guys as well. Um, the point is that when you read Ruth, it, that Ruth is a Moabite woman, you should be suspicious of her, right? Because that is the... That is the picture of a Moabite woman in your head. Which is why when you see how she acts, it breaks all those molds. And especially in the middle of chapter 1, there's this very famous declaration. She says to Naomi, she says, but, but Ruth told Naomi, do not make me leave you or stop me from coming with you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will become my people and your God my God. Ruth's love for her mother-in-law means that she's willing to change not just where she calls home, but her very culture and way of life. She's willing to sacrifice everything to follow Naomi and to follow her God, to follow Yahweh. And it is through this declaration that she meets the final character, the final main character we need to talk about, Boaz. Now, just as Ruth should be breaking your categories because she's not this, she's not acting like what you would think a Moabite woman has been set up to act like. Uh, Boaz is the same way, because remember, this is the time of the judges. If you read Judges, pretty much everybody in Israel seems to forget what the law is and do whatever they want. So that's what you should be expecting. But Boaz, through his actions, show that not only does he know the law, but he is faithful in following it. Um, and like when we're introduced to Boaz in verse one of chapter two, uh, depending on your translations, some say that he's wealthy or he was, um, rich or whatever, which is true, but that Hebrew phrase that's actually used to describe him in chapter two, verse one is the phrase, a mighty man of valor, right? 
Boaz isn't just your regular run-of-the-mill Israelite. He is a Jew among Jews. I mean, we do know he's wealthy because he has a field, he has servants, but by the way he instructs the people that work his field, the way he is so, like, the way he treats Ruth shows that not only is he generous, but his actions are reflecting the way a Israelite should live. They are reflecting what the law tells people they should be doing. And so we also see that Boaz is a man of honor because when he is when when Ruth asks to be redeemed by him, he actually steps back and he goes and he confronts the other man that could redeem her first. It shows not only that he understands the law, but it shows that he's he makes sure that the law is being followed, right? He doesn't want to take any shortcuts or be sneaky about it. He's like, no, I need to go do this first, and then I, if he refuses, I can redeem you. So the story of Ruth is this. You have a person who loses everything but is able to find redemption through the faithfulness of an Israelite who fulfills the law and is willing to accept the foreigner as his bride. And that story should sound very familiar to you because that that's the gospel right there, right? That we have the person, we have the person being Israel who gets exiled, they lose everything, and they're redeemed, their redemption is found through their Messiah, an Israelite that actually lives and fulfills the law, because that's what Jesus does. And Jesus accepts the foreigner, the Gentile, the church as his bride. And that shouldn't surprise you because you got to remember when we're reading the Bible, it's a, un it's a unified story that points to Christ, if I'm going to borrow from the Bible project there. But it's true. That's, when we're reading the Bible, it's all pointing to Jesus. And so this tiny story can still speak to us today because this story reminds us that God loves all of us and wants all of us to come to him. And notice that the redemption, the res restoration, comes through Ruth's willingness to surrender everything and seek God because of her love for someone else. And just because her willingness to follow God comes from her love for Naomi, you have to remember that her declaration was a declaration saying that the God that Naomi follows is also the God that she's going to put her trust in for her future. And that leads us to chapter 2 and what we're going to be studying the next three weeks. Because you see, chapter 2 uses a literature style that is found throughout all of the Old Testament and actually a lot of Jewish writing because it's just very Jewish in nature. And that's this idea, uh, the technical term is a chiasm. It's basically the term where if you take a section of literature, the first half is a mirror of the second half. Um, to give a very, very simple example so that you guys can hopefully picture this of what a chiasm is. It's like if I said that, like, I drove to the store, I put groceries in my cart, I paid for my groceries, I put my groceries in my car, I drove home. So the first and the last one are mirrored because they're both me driving somewhere. The second and second to last thing are mirrored because it's about me putting groceries somewhere. And then it all ties around the middle point of me paying for my groceries. And chapter 2 of Ruth works the same way. If you actually look and you break it down, the first and the last part mirror each other, then the second and the second and the last part mirror each other, and so on and so forth until you build up to the very middle. And it's all built around verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And that says, 
And Boaz answered her, I have thoroughly heard about all that all the things you have done for your mother-in-law after your husband died. How you left everything, your father, mother, and even your homeland to come to a place you have you had never been to before. I pray that the Lord will repay you for all you have done and that he, Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, will reward you greatly as you, ha as you have come to seek him as your source of protection. The central idea from chapter 2, and honestly the central idea of this whole book, is that Ruth, a foreigner, was willing to sacrifice so much for someone that she loves and that she has now decided to follow Yahweh, finding her hope in him. And it is through that decision that she becomes honored by Boaz. And Boaz honoring her leads to Boaz marrying her. Boaz marrying her leads to them having a son. Them having a son leads to the redemption of Naomi. And through their son eventually leads to Jesus, which leads to the redemption of us all. So what? Why would we, why study Ruth? Well, Ruth still talks to us today because honestly, there are so many practical takeaways we can get from this book. Like I said, um, we can see from this book and the fact that it seems like this small scale story that it shows that God works even in the small things, right? God's not just working in the big and grand areas of our lives or the big and grand things that are happening in history. He's, he's working in the day to day things. The things that seem insignificant. So that means that you don't have to be doing something huge or grand for God to be using you. From its position in the Bible, whether you look at our, our traditional way to put it or the way the Hebrews would put it, we can learn what it looks like to be a true follower of God. And we can look at it and see, well, what would be the qualities of a godly woman, a godly wife would have. We can also learn from its setting how we can be faithful in a time, and this might sound like today, we can be faithful in a time where people have decided to define good and evil according to their own standards. Sometimes we may feel like Naomi, where we feel like we have lost everything and we only just feel bitter inside. Yet, even in our bitterness, God is working to restore us and to provide for us sometimes we can find ourselves feeling like boaz where we can demonstrate god's love and kindness to the people around us by being generous and obeying his command to love god with everything and love other people but most importantly we can also look at ruth because Honestly, to become a follower of God, to become a follower of Christ, it means to leave family, friends, country, and culture behind, and to put our trust in God above, and to show sacrificial love to those around us. So if all that said, just two questions to leave you guys with. First, what are you willing to sacrifice to show love to those around you? And have you made Yahweh, the God of the Bible, your God? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that um, you work even in the little things. Thank you so much that even in these little books that seem like they're so small and insignificant, when you look at like some of these huge books that have so many chapters, you think, well, why are these books important? And yet you shine so brightly in every page of the Bible. God, I pray that through these next 
three weeks as we look through Ruth 2 that um, we will just come with ears open, hearts open, eyes open to see and hear what you have for us. That as we read this, um, this little love story that we will find ourselves in it. And that as we find ourselves in it, we will find how you want us to live today. That we can look at Ruth's example and we can live our lives like her, being willing to sacrifice everything so that we can show love to people around us. And by showing love to people around us, that we can bring redemption to the people around us. That we can bring people to you. God, I just pray that you'll be with each one of us, whether you're here, they're here in the room, they're watching online currently, or maybe they're listening to this at a later point. God, I pray that you will be with each one of us. Empower us to just trust in you with everything. In your name, amen.